0: Welcome back to Chart Beats, a journey through Stock Aitken Waterman. I'm Gavin Scott from chartbeats.com.au and here with me as always is Matthew Denby. Hi Matt.
1: Hi everyone, hope you're all well.
0: Now so far we have covered all the singles produced by Mike Stock, Matt Aitken and Pete Waterman released in 1984 and 1985. But before we dive into 1986, we thought it might be a good opportunity to pause and reflect on the journey so far.
1: Right, and what a journey it's been. Like 1984 1985, a lot happening in music and a lot happening in- with Soar. They were really finding their feet during this period, starting off with some quite hard-edged clubby sounds, Divine, Dead or Alive, some attempts at some different shades of pop with various different bands uh, with different levels of success, before settling into soul pop with the likes of Princess. This period was really about establishing a direction and a lot was going on, wasn't it Gavin?
0: It was lots of artists, some stuck around, some didn't, some were only one-off singles. And it was really interesting looking back at all these singles that, you know, we've known all these years and seeing the story. You know, it's not just each song telling a story, but the pattern of songs and, and the discography tells a story as well. And so who better to help us take one last look at those early years than one of the Saw team? I mean, this is a journey through Saw after all. So joining us for this episode is one third of the songwriting and production partnership, Mr. Mike Stock. We had a lengthy interview with Mike and we're going to play the first half hour of that pretty much in full and in that he talks about some of the key points from those early years.
1: Regarding those years we've heard the perspectives of a lot of different artists, we've heard from Phil Harding, we've heard from Pete Waterman via, you know, things he said in the past and what he wrote in his book sometimes you can have five different people in a room and they're all going to have different perspectives on what they saw and different memories. There's always going to be more than one side of the story and now we're going to hear Mike Stock's version of events
0: Yes and hopefully one day we'll be able to chat to Matt Aitken and Pete Waterman about their memories but for now let's from Mike Stock as we go right back to the beginning of the journey through Saw. So I'll start off with um when we spoke to Hazel Dean, she said those were the best times about the early years, 1984, 85. We're talking about. Are you as nostalgic for 1984, 85 once the partnership had started, or was it more of a scramble getting things up and running and off the ground and working how the three of you would work together? Are you as nostalgic, or was it a bit fraught?
2: Yeah, it's a good question because we were. It was a testing time. You know, going back to the original sort of handshake agreement that Matt Aitken and Pete Waterman and I had between us was that we would just share everything. But to begin with, Pete uh, wanted to assume a managerial role and be our manager. And Matt and I didn't feel we needed a manager. What we needed was Pete's contact in the business. He had a couple of hits managing Pete Collins, the record producer. Uh, And that's the sort of role he wanted to play with us. So in the initial recordings, the label information seemed to imply that we were the directors and he was the producer. You know, his idea was that the music industry should be like the film industry. So when Hazel talks about those times, I, I remember we were still battling between me, Matt and Pete, what and who we were. So we, we hadn't kind of worked that out properly. And we'd written this song for Hazel, which Matt Aiken had taken to Barry Evangelist to, to be able to just see if he liked the song. And he thought it would be right for Hazel, who was looking for a follow up. You know, this is after searching that she'd done. And we'd... Worked with Divine I'm speaking along am <laughs> going on a long journey To get to the question So I wouldn't ever say It was exciting uh, Over tiring and fraught As you say When Hazel came to work On Whatever I Do With Us She was herself very fraught My recollection She wasn't happy She was, um, you know Upset at times Because as I remember her saying to me That this is so important to her She's had a bit of a hit with Surgeon And now the follow-up The dreadful follow-up syndrome that people get. (laughs) How do you follow a hit? And we didn't work at the Marquee with her. We worked in some other studio. I forget where it was now. Quite a budget studio. Matt and me recorded most of the songs in my studio, bass lines and stuff like that, you know, little bits of, of the actual recording. And Pete's involvement was very, very minimal. Very minimal But he's a, he's a guy that sells everything So, you know, after we'd made the record He sold it, it's virtue to <laughs> Barry Vangley And to Nick Easter, who was there at the time And one way or another, we had the hit So it's difficult for me to say that it was we, well, None of us was relaxed We were all uh, trying to get somewhere and to understand who we were, you know. So it took a bit of a battle, but after a short time, we managed to get produced by Stock Aitken and Waterman, none of this directed business, you know.
0: One question about those early credits. Obviously, Pete Ware is mentioned in some of those early credits. Yeah. What ended up happening there? Because the four of you were working together and then see, he was then out of the picture after that. How did that come to pass?
2: Well, God, uh, well... The, the story is, uh, it's, it's not a particularly happy thing, but the um, Pete Ware and Matt Aiken and me, we worked in my studio in Abbey Wood in Southeast London, a cheap studio that we built underneath my bungalow, it had a cellar. And we worked, we programmed the Divine Record down there, for example, and we, we did the demo for whatever I do down there. And so Pete Ware was in my band, my function band, along with Matt at the time. He, he joined us. And he was interested in the studio work that we were doing. And so he came down into the studio with us. And he was part of our team. But what I used to... This is going to sound a bit weird, this. But I used to split everything with my band. I didn't take any extra because I was running it. So we get... 200 quid a gig. I'd split all between the five. It was, we all got 40 quid. I then say to them, can you chip in for the petrol from a van to get us that we all went in the van together? So they give a quid for the petrol. And when we were working down in the studio, we would get some paying clients in and I'd split everything with everybody. You know, there was no bonus. There. That's the way I wanted it. I felt comfortable doing that. So it was quite upsetting to matter me when we discovered that Pete Ware had taken our connection to Hazel Dean and gone off and started touring with her. <laughs> Earning a separate salary, you know, so it's so free. And we said, well, if you're going to do that, you can go and do that. You can't do both because that's not our arrangement. So that's how he went off and did that. That's how we, that was, there was a falling out over it. But when we're, you know, when you're starting out, everyone's got to have the same 100% commitment and you've got to put the same in uh, or, or you're not part of the team, you know, so that's, that's how that happened. <laughs>
0: Backtracking from Hazel, the first hit you had, uh, obviously, You Think You're a Man by Divine, wasn't one that uh,
2: you guys wrote. What did you think of the song? Well, I didn't choose it. It was, because um, Jeff Dean wrote it. And I think Barry Evangeli, he wanted that song And really, we were record producers and songwriters as well But somebody says, will you produce this for us? It's a gig, you know Yeah, we'll do that, of course um, So our opinion of the song isn't that important But I found it was all right I found it, you know, it was. it's high camp And, you know, when you when you learn that you're going to be doing this with Divine Then it, it's really not, it's not Beethoven <laughs> It's just a gimmicky camp song So, you know, you, we, went, we went for that for all it's worth Earth. It's quite simplistic as a song, but, you know, but I know Jeff, Jeff's an intelligent man. So it, it was studied simplicity, you know, it wasn't just because uh, he could, couldn't do anything more complex. It, it's a good little song, you know.
0: Now let's go back to Hazel. The first UK top 10 hit, Whatever I Do, uh, had obviously evolved from an earlier record. We found Michael Prince, as I'm sure you're aware, having listened to it. Yeah. And um, I don't know if you heard his story about how he found out Dance Your Love Away had been turned into Whatever I Do and he was out at a club and he heard it and he called up to find out what happened. Is that your recollection of the situation?
2: My recollection is he did call us from his hospital bed. He'd been, as he called it, fooling around with a jar of pickles. And I don't know what he meant by that. I think he'd cut his hand. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, w- with enough expletives, um, that he'd heard this woman singing his effing song and what the heck's going on sort of thing. Uh, that, I recall, it's, it's probably better if, uh, if he said that um, he heard it in a club, that's more dramatic, I suppose. <laughs>
1: Great stuff. I didn't think that Michael Prince story could get any better. You know, dancing on the dance floor and hearing your forthcoming single Come On The Loudspeaker sung by Hazel Dean. Talk about dramatic. But lo and behold, the story does get better. I never imagined a jar of pickles would come into the picture though, Gavin.
0: I don't even understand what that means. Like, how do you end up in hospital from a jar of pickles? What was he doing with the jar of pickles? I'm intrigued. It sounds like it was just this bizarre incident that happened.
1: I think, boringly enough, Probably a broken jar probably had something to do with it. Maybe a few stitches on the hand.
0: Perhaps. That sounds like a very sensible reading of the story. (laughs) I I was thinking of something way more dramatic or I don't know. Who who knows what I was thinking? It was really interesting to hear Mike talk about those early days of the partnership and settling in. I mean, it was a business arrangement and you have to work out how these things are going to run and operate.
1: Yeah, that's right. Now, what have we got next?
0: All right, let's dive back into the interview with Mike. and he's gonna talk about Saw working with all those bands. Here we go. Now, also in this era, you worked with a number of bands who we've covered on on the show so far, Dead or Alive, Brilliant, Spelt Like This, The Dance Society, Rin Tin Tin. And some of those experiences sounded like they were quite contentious, whereas others seemed to go quite smoothly from what people have been saying. For you, did it quickly become apparent that bands and Saw weren't always an easy fit?
2: Yeah, very early on, I suppose Matt uh, and I would have preferred working with vocal performers. uh, Than a band And that's because really Matt and me Were the band and on all those records All the hits that we've made you know Between us we covered all of the instruments Including the drums uh, guitars, orchestrations, you know, rhythms, pianos, whatever You're Like That was all Matt and me When you had, as with Dead or Alive and others, Ringing Tin and the ones that you mentioned The drummer always wanted to involve himself in the drums, you know The guitarist always were And mostly they weren't as good as us as musicians, let alone uh, Producers so I do Understand There's and Artists particularly If your band like the Experience of going Into a studio you Know and don't mind If they spend their Own money (laughs) messing About with a snare Sound for uh, six months But Matt and me Felt that our Responsibility was to Get them in and out As quickly as Possible uh, because it's Their money that They're spending and Most of the bands Didn't realise that And so there were Plenty of arguments With that but you Had to accommodate uh, And it did it did happened on a couple of other occasions as well with artists where it just if they've got too much of an opinion of what the music is and how it sounds well what's the point of coming to stock in waterman you know i can see on the one hand it's
0: kind of like oh look it's, it's easier if i just do it from your point of view you know playing whatever the instrument might have been we can do it better yeah i'll just do it and then obviously from their side it's kind of like well what are we here for
2: well i mean uh... Most bands um, are not very honest with themselves, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're supporting Pete Burns, you are very much in a supportive role, <laughs> you're only there because he's there, and it's, that's a kind of honesty. I mean, sometimes in some of the bands that we work with later, or, uh, you know, if you're a great singer and you're, you're a band like Steps, for example, you know, some, some of the band members were there just because they made up the numbers, to be honest. Uh, not that there was anything wrong with that. Uh, I can think of other bands where, you know, were it not for the lead singer, the, the rest wouldn't be, ha- there would be no gig for them. So we preferred, you know, working with Kylie or... or as an example, or Jason. And, but, and and they often didn't like that either, to be honest, because we were quite, well, we know what we're doing, we'll just get on with it. And some of them wanted to do, enjoy the studio for a different sort of reason, you know, to hang out. But we we just felt that was, uh, we're too much to do. So
0: It seemed like the relationship with Brilliant was possibly the most successful out of all of them.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, being brutally honest, there was Jimmy Courtie and Youth and uh, June. it was June, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, Montana. So they were very sponge-like in the studio. They had no firm idea. And I think they had dreamed up the idea of Brilliant, you know, one night in the pub. It wasn't like they were organic, I don't think, because I think Jimmy Corty was just on the lookout for anything novel or edgy. And Youth was one of these guys that... <laughs> played bass, but on the back of his guitar, he'd written the notes so he could have a look and see where was A and where was B. You know they weren't world, you know the world's best musicians, but they had a, an ear for I think sort of something a bit some concepts, you know, and novelty. Sponge like
0: is an interesting way to put it. It seems like they, from speaking to youth anyway, that he enjoyed being in the studio, but wasn't I guess fighting what you were trying to do so much. No,
2: no, they were they were following us in a lot of the ways, and we were showing showing them the way what was possible in the studio, and they they were very that was something they were excited by, I think. Um, now, the Dead or
0: Alive relationship, uh, obviously a lot has been said and written about that being difficult and, and arguments and things like that. But some of the Dead or Alive songs were your
2: biggest worldwide hits.
0: Do you think sometimes it is worth having that push and pull to keep people
2: on their toes? That push and pull business, that story that I've heard uh, Waterman talk about and a few others um, is not is very exaggerated. I mean, Phil Harding's exaggerated it beyond There there was no point where we fell out. There was only uh, a bit of tension because the other guys in the band wanted more involvement, and it's impossible, you know. When you talk about synthesized music, and they they were heavily synthesized. There was no live guitar player running around, you know. <laughs> it wasn't like that's not the sort of band. And Steve, obviously on the on the drums, was they were all computer generated drums. So there was no pretense there. People have dis- discussed the idea that we sort of left the studio in in some kind of, and then they mixed it without us. It's just completely untrue. We left the recording at eleven o'clock on the appointed night for Phil to come in and mix it that was the way we often did things mixed overnight and then 11 o'clock in the morning Matt and me came back in and checked the mix over to see if they hadn't missed out the harmony (laughs) or Or something And that's how, how it was done There was no argument And because clearly not uh, Because they came back in the studio We finished off the album And then we did another album So it's, you know It was a working relationship But, but you know Pete Burns was quite caustic In his comments And quite sarcastic And you know in a, in a sort of a Scousy, <laughs> Liverpudlian way You know, and difficult Sometimes you didn't know how to take it But, you know I got on well with him personally And he got on well with me, I think. And, and also he sent my wife flowers when we had. Birth of one of our children Um, So we had a sort of Personal relationship As well like that
0: So So that second album uh, Mad, Bad and Dangerous To know The claims around that Are that it was The first album took a month That album took six months And it was just An incredibly difficult process Is that something You would also dispute?
2: I'm not saying it is easy From the point of view As I'd already explained With the bands It is difficult And that would be the reason If it took any longer But there's another thing To fit into that We'd moved out of the vineyard at the uh, Marquis Studios and we were really setting up our own studios at the Vineyard and that produced Delays and uh, teething problems in themselves. And we were also working with having had hits with Divine Hazel and then Dead or Alive, we were doing a lot more work. So we weren't working with Dead or Alive every day for six months, you know, that we'd say, let's come in next Tuesday and do a track or whatever, you know what I mean? We just fitted them into the diary. And they were off anyway, quite busily promoting themselves. And the other thing to filter into all of this is that once you've had a hit like we did with them, Suddenly, everybody thinks they're the reason for it, and uh, so a few of the band members, you know, wanted more involvement. So then, you, so then that, that those tensions arose. But really, you know, as, as Walter, Pete Waterman sometimes says, you know, you have a hit, and suddenly you become intelligent.
1: What an epic record that was, and it's become the stuff of legend, that recording session that produced You Spin Me Round. We've heard from Phil Harding, we've heard from Pete Burns in the past in many interviews talking about it. We've heard from Pete Waterman, who also had a pretty dramatic take on that story. But it seems that Mike Stock remembers things very differently. I mean, he certainly did an amazing job on that record. They all did. It's like you, you can't produce something that fantastic without a lot of really talented people being involved.
0: Yeah, and I guess that's what I was getting at with the question about as difficult as some of these situations might have been been. Sometimes I feel like you need that push and pull. If you're all kind of pushing each other, you all end up doing your very best and you bring out the best in each other. And sometimes that takes a bit of friction, I think.
1: I really believe that a bit of tension does have a lot of creative uh, spark to it. So thank you. Whatever, whatever happened, thank you for making that amazing record.
0: That's right. Now let's hear about some more amazing records and particularly... Princess, and the rest of the soul pop genre that Stock Egg and Waterman moved into. Let's hear some more from Mike on that. After Divine Hazel and Dead or Alive, it was the transition away from High Energy, which had obviously been very successful for you, into the soul and R&B sound. Why that transition? Why not just stick with the stuff that was working? Or is that exactly the reason why to move away?
2: Uh, Well, actually, um, Princess was happening at the same time as we were moving on with Dead or Alive. So we were doing both sorts uh, Matt and me don't, don't regard ourselves as um, incapable of producing any kind of music because we have an eclectic taste as well as... An eclectic background And when we were gigging Matt gigged before he met me But in my band We did every type of music From dinner music You know the American songbook Or whatever you might call it To modern music Disco and everything that In between And um, Matt cut his teeth On Led Zeppelin I, I cut mine on the Beatles So we had You know a range of skills I suppose you could say And tastes That allowed us To, to d- dabble in nearly anything With Princess She was a backing singer For um, Brilliant. So we, with me Um uh, and the style of singer she was, I thought, well, we could do a, an R&B style of song with her. At the same time as you could do, you know, Get Me to the Doctor from uh, Dead or Alive. You know, it's it's all around that sort of time. So I don't think I don't think there was any a decision to transition. But as record producers, we didn't particularly want to be just shoehorned into one category. We w- we wanted to show our breadth. I think partly because we enjoyed other type of music. You know, Other types
0: did. Say I'm your number one feel like a risk at the time. Well, it was a, it was a risk.
2: But no, we weren't um, so firmly established that, although we were picking up projects uh, like Brilliant, and I think they were signed to WEA Warners, uh, and so so Warners picked up the tab, uh, we were still I was very interested in ploughing our own furrow and I wanted our own record label from the very earliest moments that it could be thought of in that way. If you had a record that nobody else wanted, we'd put it out ourselves. And I think I did... The Princess song, Pete Waterman was away on holiday and I did did that at night after the session with Brilliant had finished. Um, so it sort was of 10 o'clock at night, got her in and sang the song and then Matt me finish the record. And I got Phil Harding to mix it and I said, look, here's... A song by Brooklyn, Bronx and Queens, BB&Q band, uh, which had that bell sound on it, which I really liked, and said, I want it to sound like this, played in the record, and that feels very good at that. You know, you could match sounds up. So we got our own R and B track together. Then when Waterman came back, I left it on Waterman's desk for him to hear it—a cassette—and I could hear him going berserk over it in the, his office when he heard it. He loved it, and then gave it to, to, to sort of Nick East, who we'd known via Barry, but, you know, because bringing to bear our producer and songwriter capabilities with Pete Waterman's marketing knowledge and, and Nick East's and an artist like Princess Who Can Sing, you know, you can... So they they got together and stuck her out on the roads. You went and did clubs and things around London. So we started a buzz, but, you know, there was never any question in our mind that we would have a hit. It was only, hopefully, we'll have a hit. That's the way it always was. I always kept my fingers crossed, never went out saying any record. We were never cocky or overconfident.
0: Now, obviously, Siam your number one was huge, but the other uh, soul stuff you did in 1985 for Haywood, Three Degrees, Ochi Brown, and even After the Love is Gone, didn't connect in that same way. Why do you think that was? Because, I mean, they're all good songs
2: um ochi brown and hayward were they had deals with uh, major record labels I'm trying to remember who ochi brown was on now which label magnet oh, it's magnet well magnet's connected to a major um and hayward where was she she was cbs yeah so there you go um the the major of the day was cbs and so once you've made a record it's over to those guys to promote it and to work out where to sell it with the three degrees that was with Supreme and Nick East. and So, yes, that was a bit of a disappointment because that should have perhaps done better than it did. But I don't know, type of artist maybe, because they weren't, I'm not saying they were old at the time, but they were, you know, older than Princess and the younger artists, had, you know, they had had their hits in the 70s. So there's a sort of feeling that they perhaps didn't have the mileage in them that uh, the younger artists did. But I, I, I can't explain why, but you, you, you take those things. If we had a hit, we were highly delighted, but we were never you know, confident that we would.
0: And I guess to wrap up this era, and we maybe have answered that with The Heaven I Need, the, the last question I had was, what single from 1984 85 were you surprised didn't do better on the UK chart?
2: I'm going to need to look at a list. <laughs> <laughs> to, to give you an answer on that. But I suppose, no, I, I don't know whether I whether I thought that heaven, it should have been a bigger record than it was. I don't know about that.
0: What about Hazel's follow-ups to Whatever I Do, Back in My Arms and No Fool for Love, which both stalled at 41?
2: Well, you see, for that, you need to understand the machinations of the record industry. When you've had a hit, when you're top five, as we were with Whatever I Do, your head's above the parapet and suddenly the industry closes ranks And 41, a lot of our records stalled at number 41 over the years. I mean, a surprising number. no, let's put it this way, An, a number that would be too much of a coincidence to accept without your knowledge of how the industry works. 41, the playlist for Radio 1 was always taken out of the top 40. If you're at 41, you are invisible. They could have stalled you at 45 or 80, and then people would question the record. But if you're still at 41, it's, it's just how they manipulated the numbers to keep you out. It doesn't happen anymore because there's no chart like that, but it was a well-known thing, you know. Do I sound like a conspiracy theorist? You Know who knows it it
0: it might be the case.
2: No, it's definitely the case that the charts were manipulated. They always were, right from the earliest days. There's no doubt about that. I see Hazel, we had we did come back and have hits, other hits with Hazel, yes. but the initial follow-ups, I don't think the songs were, were wrong. I think the productions were not radio friendly. This is the problem because they're high energy based normally. I'm back in my arms, it's but it's so in you you know, I think. I did hear one Radio 1 DJ gave it a spin, um, saying, oh, my God, imagine waking up next to that every morning. Because it's a, it's a herring vocal screaming out uh, with a high energy beat. Uh, and I guess radio, it's not radio friendly. So if you don't promote it through the clubs in the way that you promote it, whatever I do through the clubs, which is where we went with her, you know, you, you lose that crowd. You've lost, lost your foothold.
1: Well, I think that DJ was a little harsh, but uh, long-term listeners of this podcast will remember I did agree that perhaps that one was perhaps a little bit shrill in places. Not my favourite Hazel Dean song, but still, it filled the dance floors.
0: I was really interested to hear Mike talking about chart manipulation and chart rigging and stuff like that. As a bit of a chart geek, that kind of stuff is fascinating to me, and it's obviously a topic that Mike is interested in. In the 90s, and Saw fans will know this, Stock and Aitken released a single, it was a cover version of You Can Do Magic, and it was sung by sunita but it was credited to an act called mojams featuring debbie curry and the whole purpose of that single was to prove that the charts were rigged so yeah obviously mike is quite interested in that topic and coming up on the podcast we're gonna hear from another saw artist or rather a saw artist's manager about a possible example of chart manipulation chart rigging so yeah that's something to look forward to as well But that's all we've got from our interview with Mike for the time being. We did speak to him for another hour, and we'll be featuring that in future episodes as we continue our journey into the singles produced by Saw that were released in 1986. Speaking of 1986, we'll be back with our first 1986 episode very soon, and we'll be covering the first five singles produced by Saw that were released in that year.
1: That's right. We'll be taking a look at the second singles from Brilliant, Haywood and The Three Degrees, and Another Princess single, which I just love.
0: And we'll also be hearing about a one-off single that saw produced for a band from Italy.
2: Hi, this is Marcello Semeraro from Canton and I'm talking to Chard Beats about my journey with talking and Waterman.
0: So it's back to normal next episode, which you'll have very soon. Hope you've enjoyed this special episode with Mike Stock. For our subscribers, the bonus material this episode features more from my lengthy chat with Phil Harding, where he's answering a very important question. What is the difference between a producer, an engineer, and a mixer? And there's some other content from our interview with Phil we haven't been able to include in the normal podcast. Love a bit of Phil. Now to subscribe for all the bonus content, and there's quite a lot of it now, head to chart beats.com.au saw click on the bonus content links and you can subscribe for as little as two dollars a month and join us very soon to start the journey through 1986 are you excited matt
1: i'm very excited some of my favorite saw records coming up very very soon
0: that's right bye for now everyone
1: see everyone